I stand squarely behind my decision. After 20 years, I've learned the hard way that there was never a good time to withdraw U.S. forces. That's why we're still there. We were clear-eyed about the risk. We planned for every contingency, but I always promised the American people that I would be straight with you. The truth is, this did unfold more quickly than we had anticipated. That was a defiant President Biden on Monday, offering a spirited defense and no apologies for his decision to abruptly pull all U.S. troops out of Afghanistan, even as he acknowledged it didn't play out exactly as he had hoped. Actually, the withdrawal, as it unfolded over the weekend, couldn't have been more disastrous for the White House. The Afghan president fled, the Taliban marched into Kabul and seized control, and thousands of Afghans rushed to the airport, in some cases clinging to departing aircraft, as part of a desperate attempt to leave the country. Biden engaged in no small round of finger-pointing. The Trump administration, he claimed, had boxed him in, signing a peace agreement with the Taliban that left him no choice but to pull out. And the Afghan army refused to put up a fight, resulting in the chaos that followed. Is Biden right? We'll get some answers from veteran journalist Peter Bergen, who has spent as much time in Afghanistan as anybody tracking the Taliban and the terrorists they protected on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice and back from vacation from the smoky hills of California. We want to hear about that, Victoria, but that's for another show. Um, So, look, it was just last Thursday I brilliantly prognosticated that um, the Taliban might actually take over the country by September 11th, the 20th anniversary of the attacks on the World Trade Towers and the Pentagon. I was off by several weeks. The Taliban beat me to the punch. And, you know, it just underscored how rapid, how chaotic, and how paradigm-changing the events have been in Afghanistan over the past several weeks, but in particular over the last few days. There's a lot to dig into about this, but I'd like to just sort of point out that politically, I think uh, this is going to have a huge impact. It's the first real black eye for the Biden White House, although the American public may have, in poll after poll, supported the idea of pulling out, uh, nobody uh, watching the images on TV of the chaos and uh, freefall uh, that's going on there uh, can feel really good about it. And this could have lots of spillover effects for the Biden administration and what it, what happens in Congress and politically across the country. Yeah, I agree that at least in the short term, it's hard to know exactly how it plays out. This is a politically a big problem for Joe Biden. You know, the irony is that what happened over the last few days 
vindicates the basic policy to get out of Afghanistan. And I think I think it was inevitable, no matter how they did it, even if they executed a brilliant operation to get out, the Taliban was going to take over the country. The fact of the matter is, is that the only way you were going to ever make it work there is if you fundamentally change the dynamics of Afghan society, right? And that just wasn't going to happen. You know, the country, it's too tribal, it's too fragmented, it's too resistant. Yeah, but, but, uh, it's but too, that it's assumes... Too, let me just finish. That, okay. Let me just finish. It's too right. resistant to the idea of a unified state. And, you know, so I, I think not only was Biden right about getting out, but Trump was right who really set it, well, I guess Obama set it in motion, but Trump really accelerated, accelerated it. So the real problem is the way it was done, which was totally botched, and these searing images of, of how it happened, these chaotic, desperate scenes at the Kabul airport, you know, with people clinging to a U.S. Air Force C-17 transport plane. I mean, that is really politically uh, damaging. And I will, just last thing I'll say before you jump in. Uh, you know, normally Americans don't pay that much attention to foreign policy and they don't vote on, on foreign policy issues. But the exception is when there is a, a real debacle that makes a president look incompetent and weak. You can think about, I don't know, Reagan, uh, you know, the 241 Marines um, who were killed at their barracks uh, by a terrorist organization in 1980. One or whenever, 1983, whenever that was, or Jimmy Carter and Desert One and the failed attempt to uh, rescue the uh, the hostages in Iran, and this is of even a greater magnitude or a worse one than 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 either either of those uh, in two, some two, way. Just two quick points before uh, Victoria weighs in here. Number one is those clips of Biden from just in you know in april and then in, and then in july saying we're not going to see the images like we saw in saigon in 1975 and saying again it was highly unlikely that the taliban are going to rapidly move in and take over the country those clips are going to be played over and over again and, and cut in 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 yeah, hundreds in, of, in of ads, political uh, republican it, political ads yeah and it's hard to see how Biden can, you know, effectively rebut his own words, which have been proven so false. And secondly, your point about this vindicates the argument for getting out, you know, assumes that the mission at this point was to, quote, win the war or achieve, you know, or to nation build and leave a democratic Afghan uh, Afghanistan behind that, you know, is really. But it, but it was the mission. In That's fact, why we were there well, for 20 years. the mission wrongly. Yeah. But the argument on the other side has been by the time of you know, in the, the last couple of years, we were just managing a bad situation. And as has been pointed out, we only had about 2,500 troops there. We had no American casualties in 2020 at all. And Afghanistan was off the front pages. Uh, it was not, the American public wasn't thinking about it, wasn't talking about it. So, you know, if that was the alternative, I think a lot of people looking at the, you know, the disaster of the last few days will say, yeah, maybe if that was the alternative. Right. Well, I think what you're saying is, one. I think what you're saying is there was no longer any debate 
really about whether to get out. Everyone was in agreement. So all you really have to talk about is how it was done. Is and it managing, was, and it was, no, no, no. Right, managing was, a bad situation, which may have gone on for, you know, a few more years or, right. or maybe more. Right. You know, we've well, had troops in South Korea years. Come on, Germany Mike. Hel- hello, decades. hello, hello. Hi, yeah. <laughs> yes, Victoria. Oh, Tell hello. us why we're both wrong. <laughs> yeah. No, I don't. I think you're both. I think you're both right. Um, so <laughs> I, How I, diplomatic! I'm, no wonder I we made so, you the co-host. So, of the show. Right. Yeah. So I'm I'm thinking about the kind of the domestic U.S. politics that are going on right now, and uh, thinking on the speech that Biden gave today, Monday. I think it was, on the one hand, possibly the most cold-hearted speech I've ever heard an American president give about our foreign policy. It was. It was almost brutal in its kind of clinical dissection of what's going on in Afghanistan and washing his hands of it and read and defining the mission um, or the lack of mission that we have there. And I think at least in as much as it was a brutal speech, I, I, I wonder, first of all, if there was very much different about that speech that Biden gave than what Trump might have given in terms of his reasons for withdrawing from Afghanistan. Yeah. And I also think that he was laying the groundwork in his defiance. And by the way, he's not getting much defense from Democrats or Republicans for what's going on in Afghanistan right now. There is a rare bipartisan unity in thinking that what's happened in Afghanistan is, and I think I can say this because it's a podcast, a total shit show, right? So I think what he was doing is laying the groundwork for a relentless defense of the decision. And he's, he's betting that these awful images are going to fade away over the course of the next few months, and that in 2022, we will have all forgotten about it because it's Afghan people who are being affected, not Americans. Well, we we will all forget about it if al-Qaeda does not reconstitute, other jihadis do not flock to Afghanistan, and you know, do and start mounting attacks on the West, and and also the images of what happens in Afghanistan. You know, are there mass murders going on? We'll see what Peter Bergen says yeah. about Al Qaeda's ability to reconstitute in Afghanistan. Use that as a as a base for uh, for operations um, outside of Afghanistan. You know, it is interesting that um, Al Qaeda. It's it's been I think since something like 2005 in in England in London um, that Al Qaeda has successfully struck outside of the region. You know, in a, in a an organized attack, not just lone wolves who are inspired by Al Qaeda. But I, I was going to say I agree. Uh, I really agree 100 percent with what Victoria was saying about the kind of speech it was, and that it could have a little more eloquent. I think probably than if Donald Trump had given it. But the same um, kind of sentiments and. And I think what was effective about it, we'll see how effective, is where when he talked about the Afghans giving up the fight. Now, some would say he was uh, throwing them under the bus, and that was a little bit um, cold-hearted as well. But the point he made about why should we sacrifice our men and women in uniform and continue to spend trillions of dollars of U.S. Uh, treasure for something that the Afghan them- themselves won't step up to you know, for their own future. I think that is an, an effective uh, line of argument. But in this moment, with those images, 
I'm not sure how how much effect that'll have. What what struck me about the speech, and I thought it was really interesting that Victoria said it was you know as as brutal a speech as on foreign policy as she's heard, is this was very personal for Biden, and you could tell that, you know, he had opposed Obama's surge in 2009. He felt he was right, and you know Obama got rolled by the military. And he was not going to let that happen on his watch. There was, a, a, I think, a sense of vindication on his part that I'm going to prove I was right all along. Unfortunately, the images we're seeing uh, on TV are not, are not terribly supportive of um, the vindication that he's, that he's looking for. But look, uh, Peter Bergen knows this subject as well as anybody. So let's get to it. Okay, nobody knows more about Afghanistan and the U.S. involvement in that country than Peter Bergen, veteran journalist, uh, veteran author, including of the new book, The Rise and Fall of Osama Bin Laden. Peter, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thank you. So you watched our president defend his decision to pull out in quite emphatic terms, saying he doesn't regret anything about his basic decision. What did you make of uh, Biden's speech? Yeah, I thought it was a pretty good speech. I, I think there, were, there was at least one very big straw person in that speech, which is that we needed to adhere to the agreement the Trump administration had bequeathed us. And we've heard this from the White House pretty often recently. And I think there are several problems with that argument. One, this is not a treaty. Two, it's an agreement. It's not even with another government. In fact, we specifically excluded the Afghan government from the agreement. Uh, so it's an agreement with a terrorist insurgent group with, that a previous administration made and that the group itself wasn't adhering to. So that what were the two principal conditions for a complete U.S. withdrawal? One, break with al-Qaeda. Two, enter into genuine peace negotiations with the Afghan government. Well, neither of those things happened. So I think the comparison to the Iranian nuclear agreement is instructive, which is was negotiated with a sovereign government, with our three closest allies, the British, the French, and the Canadian, uh, British, French, and Germans, and, you know, over many years. And the Iranians were adhering to the agreement. So, and the Trump administration had absolutely no problem about pulling out of that. So, but let's dig into that a little more because I want to hear your reaction to some of the ways that Biden kind of elaborated on that, which is what I heard him say was that if we had extended the time before withdrawing, that it would have given the, the Taliban the incentive to kind of go back to fighting, that they would have been at the height, they, were, they are at the height of their strength, you know, we would have been in the, in the summer fighting season, um, you know, so on and so forth, and that we would have then started to take casualties again, perhaps we'd have to send more troops in, and that he wasn't going to do that. Does that hold water at all for you? Well, I mean, you could as easily imagine that we just kept to the status quo ante. I mean, look, in Iraq, we had the same number of troops. We just renamed them non-combat personnel. So, uh, you know, 2,500 in Iraq and 2,500 in Afghanistan. So 
I just think it was sort of an unforced error. There wasn't really a huge demand constituency in the United States to kind of just pull the plug in this way. And I think you could have just managed with relatively low kind of amount of money and the United States in the, you know, doing an advise and assist mission essentially with some kind of terrorism. And I, yes, I think it would have been, I, I just, I don't really understand kind of why he did it. Uh, I mean, we hear that he didn't want to hand the problem on to the next president, but was the problem that big at this point? I mean, 2,500 troops when we have 1.3 million active duty, and 2 million if you throw in the reserves. I'm not a mathematician, but as a percentage, it's it's a you know very small number. And you know, now there's this situation in Iraq in many ways, and yet where well, we're getting attacked all the time by Shia militias, by the way, you know, and somehow there was a different decision. So I just, it's a head scratcher. I think, it, I mean, my, and you guys may have a better insight than I do, which is, this seems to be entirely Biden's decision. Maybe, you know, it doesn't seem to be, it seems to be something that he just has a bee in his bonnet about. And, you know, clearly a lot of people said this is going to be problematic. And it was, and it is. So as a political matter, as a speech where he was trying to justify his decision, not necessarily Trump's decision, how did you think it went? Well, as a, I think as a, as a speech, it was pretty good because it did concede. It didn't, it, wasn't, it didn't say, like, I'm totally right. I mean, he conceded that you know, things are not kind of planned. And he's, he's, you know, he, one of his car, typical cards is you know, empathy. And I think he tried to demonstrate some empathy for the, the scenes that we're seeing. I don't say it wasn't a bad speech, but I just think it was, you know, I happen to disagree with like many of the premises. And I just, you know, the, the pullout from Saigon is orderly by comparison to what we're seeing. I'm getting bombarded by, you know, tons of people in Kabul who want to get out or trying to find a way to get out. And it's hard for me to assess sometimes, you know, what the degree of risk is for them, but they clearly they're, they're, they're reaching out to anybody they think has any chance of helping. And of course, the problem is, is that the United States is so bureaucratic. I mean, even if it wants to help, it's going to take forever, right? So, you know, I mean, uh, and there's not like a lot of time for many of these people. And I, the other thing I have, one of the reasons I have, I have, feel the way I do is I spent a lot of time in Taliban control of Afghanistan, not years, but certainly many, many weeks in, in 97, uh, 99 and 2000. And so I have a pretty good sense of what the you know Taliban utopia is going to look like, because I don't see there's a lot of evidence that for them suddenly changing their views on any of their key, the key ways they look at the world. So you're a prolific author and author of the new book, The Rise and Fall of Osama bin Laden, we'll get to in a moment. But you're also, your, your previous book, which came out, I guess, a, a year and a half or two years ago, was Trump and the Generals. And one of the things that struck me is in the new book by Phil Rucker and Carol Lennick, we had them on last week, I Alone Can Fix It, about Trump. Uh, they write in there about how the generals, starting with Milley himself, were all ready to resign in protest over Trump's pullout, planned pullout from Afghanistan. They felt that strongly that it was would be chaotic and disastrous for U.S. interests. Trump did not pull the trigger, even though after the election, you know, he sent uh, uh, missives suggesting he was ready to do so. They're all still there. Milley and the entire Joint Chiefs are still there, who just last year were threatening to quit in protest 
about Trump's withdrawal. We have not heard them threatening to quit or speaking out about this withdrawal. What do you make of that? I, I, it's a great question. I, I, I don't know. And I, it's interesting that on the reporting from Sunday suggests that Millie, you know, had a pretty uh, non-optimistic view of like jihad is pouring into Afghanistan when he talked uh, to the Senate, uh, you know, on a, in a Senate briefing. So, I mean, clearly that's where his, his head is at. But I mean, maybe that came in the context of all the other things that had happened that Millie had to kind of <laughs> deal right. with. <laughs> Worrying about the Reichstag moment <laughs> that we might be in. It's an interesting question. I mean, this gets to such a sort of interesting question about American military civil relations, because, you know, the military is supposed to give their best military advice. And that, that's the whole theme of dereliction of duty is that they didn't really give their best military advice and because they kind of knew that Lyndon Johnson wouldn't really welcome it. But on the other hand, if Lyndon Johnson was the president, <laughs> so, and, you know, they can give their best military advice, which they're supposed to, and then it can just be rejected. And uh, that's the way the system works. And it so reminds me, by the way, of of H. R. McMaster's classic book about Vietnam, and it really well, that's was, what he was that's a what good Peter book. Was and his to. main point was the military and the Pentagon tailored its assessments about where things were in Vietnam to what the White House wanted to hear. Yeah. So, and that was kind of a mistake. But we're now you're positing the military if this is all true, that that was prepared to resign because of one form of military advice to one president, and then another president comes along, essentially makes the same decision and goes through with it, and, and Millie doesn't resign. So, I don't know. It, it's, um, I mean, the main point is, is that you can, you can give the best military advice, and it can be simply ignored, and that's really how the system is supposed to work. <laughs> Peter, I, I want to go back to something that Biden said in the speech again. Yeah. Um, so, look, I think people can agree or disagree about whether the policy was right to pull out of Afghanistan and pull yeah. out very, fairly quickly. You know, I think it's likely that no matter, you know, that if the decision is to pull out, that at some point the Taliban was going to take over the country again, right? Because it doesn't seem that sticking around for another three months would uh, do enough to get the Afghan military to really develop the will to fight a war that clearly they didn't they didn't have. But what Biden seemed to glide over was the tactical piece of this, which I think is what is hurting him the most here uh, politically and causing uh, tragedy in, in Afghanistan, which is doing it in such a disorderly, hasty fashion, telegraphing to the Taliban the time that we exactly when we were going to pull out. And so you have these terrible, terrible scenes at the airport of, uh, you know, of Afghans clutching to the wheels of a C-17 Hercules transport plane and all of these people who may end up getting left behind. But what Biden said, and I want you to, I, I didn't fully understand it. He said, he gave two explanations for this. One was a lot of the Afghans didn't want to leave anyway because they want to see their country, see if their country can, can be rebuilt or something like that. And then that the Afghan leadership thought that it might, I think he said, it might, it might trigger a crisis of confidence yeah. um, if, uh, if we delayed our departure. Or if we accelerated and started moving people out and started, earlier, right, that right, that right, would right. create... Well, this may be a non-falsifiable proposition since the Afghan government that 
that it used to exist is no longer there. So, I mean, I don't know. It's an interesting. I mean, I would zoom out a bit further from the tactical question to more of an operational question, which is the whole way. It was an interesting. I thought the, the there was a good piece that I think in the Washington Post today, which is, you know, as soon as we said that we're really planning to leave, that's when the Taliban started. You know, kind of the operations that led to either surrenders or, in some cases, fighting. And and yeah, you know, once we started withdrawing close air support, the Af the morale of the Afghan army kind of collapsed, and so that's all sort of bound up with this peace negotiation in Doha, which really was a, really a withdrawal negotiation, and I think was entirely conducted under false pretenses. It was a charade. The Taliban had no intention of. I mean, they they wanted the negotiating table, but they weren't winning on the battlefield. And so you know you can, so I think the defend the kind of defenders of the Biden administration say, well, it basically was a, the correct idea. It just maybe wasn't like executed very well. Another version of the Biden defense is, you know, look, I was so right about this decision that the complete collapse of the Afghan army and, and, and the complete, complete collapse of the Afghan government underlines how brilliant my decision was, which is kind of a, I don't know, a strange way to defend <laughs> this decision. So, you know, we're going to be, uh, Craig Whitlock, you know, obviously is coming out with the Afghanistan papers and the book is already doing very well, even though I was speaking to two authors on this call. The book hasn't even come out. And I think last time I checked, and I, you know, I don't have author MD or anything. I think it was 165 on Amazon, which <laughs> <laughs> means you're kind of heading towards the New York Times bestseller list even before you're being published. So, so you know, we're going to be, the who lost China question is going to be, the who lost Afghanistan question. There's a lot of blame to go around, including, but I think, you know, part of the problem has been our consistent inconsistency in strategy and personnel and, and part of it. And in fact, zooming out even further, it goes to the nature of the American project. We're an anti-empire project. So anything that sort of smacks of any kind of empire-like activity, we're kind of inherently suspicious of, and we're always saying, well, We'll be out in six months and we're not really here. We never learn the languages, et cetera. So maybe I, I just I do think that there could have been a, another way. Let me just ask, because the, the, the other kind of main argument that, that Biden made had to do with the scope of America's strategic goals in Afghanistan. He said, we're not there to keep any particular government in place. We're not there for the Afghan people. He said, we're there for one reason only, and that's to prevent it from being a foothold for international terrorism that could impact American soil or Americans. And we don't need troops on the ground to do that. We can we can combat terrorism as we do in the rest of the world from a, a kind of over the horizon anti-terrorism efforts. So there are two parts to this equation that sort of strike me as really important. The first is from a kind of a middle or long-term strategic, from a middle or long-term perspective, did what happened today and has happened in the last few weeks increase the risk that Afghanistan is going to be a staging ground for international terrorism that could impact the United States in its own territory? And second of all, is Biden correct that the, the more appropriate tactical approach is over-the-horizon anti-terrorism efforts? Well, he could be in the sense that over the horizon has been quite successful in terms of uh, degrading al-Qaeda in Yemen and al-Shabaab in Somalia, but he could also be completely wrong. 
because he and you know, as, you, as you know, he presided over the Iraq pullout, and that led to the United States going back in 2014. And I think that's a very interesting model because the Iraqi army was as was as crappy as the Afghan army, you know, in the summer of 2014. And over the course of two or three years, the United States, through an advise and assist mission, built up the Iraqi counterterrorism service, which has been tremendously successful with very uh, almost no American casualties. This is a you know the, um, a very popular group in Iraq. The leader is a guy called uh, General Al Saidi. He's sort of a, a, a you know great hero in Iraq, non-sectarian. A lot of people volunteered to fight with it. it was a high esprit de corps. It completely destroyed ISIS. Now that didn't happen overnight. So you know Biden may be right that you can do some of this over the horizon from Qatar or United Arab Emirates. But you know, if it, if if the Taliban morphs into sort of ISIS 3.0, that's more than just sort of some bombing runs from the airbase. And in- and and also the uh, Peter, the counterterrorism sources I speak to point out that you know that over the horizon stuff, if you're going to do it, it really helps a lot to have intel assets on the ground to tell you where the bad guys are and where to aim those, uh, where the drones should strike. We're not going to have any intel assets well, on the ground we, in Afghanistan. Presumably we will have. Presumably well, we will have no, some. No, we won't because well, we're pulling all U.S. out no, we're and what have spe- Afghans we're, we're gonna are going to spe- work we're gonna for have special, us. Mike, we're going to have special operations forces going in there and well, they are spotters. Well, they could try, but not... not we will not have the kind of robust intelligence assets. No, that not we've robust. Had. Peter, your take on? Um, well, should we, should we should we should we agree on the following? So, Al Qaeda in, in in Yemen, the wall over the horizon worked fine. Al Qaeda in Yemen was a you know a few like you know a few hundred people probably at, at any given moment. The Taliban, uh, in his speech, President Biden put a number of seventy five thousand. I think you're going to have, you know thousand many thousands of foreign fighters coming in to join that group so this is more of an insurgent army uh, stroke terrorist organization that will be developing it not, not dissimilar to isis which was about thirty thousand initially so i mean it just seems to me that i think yeah you can do this over the horizon if if it's kind of a limited group but if it's becoming a much larger organization then you're gonna have to send people in and you know what will trigger this is two things one ethnic cleansing because of the responsibility to protect the United States. I mean, here we got Samantha Power in the cabinet, and that was what triggered when the Yazidis were actually you know, going to be completely destroyed. That's when Obama changed his mind. And then Jim Foley was killed, and that you know, moved it even further down. So you know, the, what are the triggers that would change a Biden's mind? One is you know, evidence of consistent ethnic cleansing. And two, you know, if Americans were taken hostage, by the way, they have one American hostage, right? Mark Frerichs, who was a contractor taken by the Akani network. So, um, you know, and if they try to kill an American hostage or hostages, that also might change the calculus because Americans don't care about Afghanistan, but they might, I mean, the, the images that we're seeing can yeah, the politics can change around what you see. Right, right. And by the way, if the if if the issue about we'll send in special forces time and again for those over the horizon efforts, it's kind of hard to square that with Biden's words today. I cannot and will not ask our troops to fight endlessly in another country's civil war. Right. That seems to be what he precisely he would be doing if we have special forces going in there all the time to deal with it. 
I want to follow up on something just quickly. Peter, one thing that, that you're hearing some people, and maybe this is wishful thinking, saying is that the Taliban uh, may not have the uh, same incentive that they had decades ago to invite foreign terrorists into Afghanistan and to give safe harbor to them. It didn't work out that well for them in 2001. They, you know, had to, you know, fight a 20, 20 year uh, war to come back into into power. And they, of course, you know, may want um, international aid. You know, the United States has leverage, uh, has influence with a lot of the countries that might provide that foreign assistance, like Saudi Arabia, for example. So how certain are you that the Taliban will do what they did the last time around and invite many thousands of foreign terrorists into uh, Afghanistan? I don't think they're going to invite. I think these people are going to volunteer. And I, I, you know, the Saudi, the Saudis are not going to recognize the Taliban, I don't think. You know, MBS is a very different animal. <laughs> you know, he, yeah. he, for him, the Muslim Brotherhood is a terrorist organization, right? I mean, so the Taliban. <laughs> so I, do, I think that the who will recognize the Taliban, Pakistan and China. And I think that will be it because UAE will, will go the same way as Saudi. So I don't, mm-hmm. I don't think they're going to. So I don't think the Taliban also doesn't need a lot of it needs some money from outside. But, you know, it's sitting on a billion dollars every year from heroin and opium. And it's going to be be able to tax and extort, extort 35 million people that it controls. So I think their reliance on international aid is not going to be great. They're going to tolerate international NGOs that provide health care. You know, which they've done, by the way, in the areas they controlled before the takeover. They they would do deals with the, uh, you know, ICRC and stuff, so that, because they they want people to get medical attention that they can't provide. But beyond that, I don't see. And, and you think that they will tolerate a reconstitution of Al Qaeda in Afghanistan that may want to strike out internationally? That 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 will be something that they will actively support? Yeah, I mean, it's not my opinion. The United Nations. Um, you know, in June, so the relations between Al Qaeda and the Taliban are quite very close. And this is the UN. I mean, I don't think of the UN as sort of a warmongering organization. And this, you know, they put produce these regular reports. And you know, does Al Qaeda have the capacity to attack in the United States, uh, even under the, those circumstances? Probably not. But does uh, does a does a Taliban Al Qaeda jihadi kind of Woodstock situation in? Afghanistan inspire people sitting in Ohio and people with these ideas as, as ISIS did. Yeah, that's very possible, right? Because that's going to be the, the we won against another superpower. Anybody who has these ideas, ISIS, of course, you know, was very inspirational when it controlled much of Iraq and Syria. And the foreign fighter flow just went down to zero once they lost the geographical caliphate. And very few people did attacks in their name once they disappeared as a geographical entity. So you don't yeah. By the way, one one data point worth mentioning, um, our colleague uh, Jana Winter has gotten hold another gotten hold of another one of these uh, FBI DHS bulletins pointing out that uh, just at the end of June, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula produced a new edition of Inspire magazine, the first time it had done so in four years, instructing attackers on taking advantage of uh, lax U.S. gun laws to buy uh, easy-to-assemble gun parts and also um, develop their own uh, IEDs. So a sign that they are still out there and still 
trying to come up with ways to attack uh, the uh, homeland or inspire folks to attack the homeland. But let me just ask you about the subject of your book, Al-Qaeda and bin Laden. We got bin Laden 10 years ago. He's been dead. He was the inspirational figure uh, behind Al-Qaeda. I've never quite understood just why he was as inspirational as he was. Perhaps you can explain that. But also just talk about where Al-Qaeda is 10 years after his death and 20 years after 9-11. I mean, I think they're in bad shape, you know, pretty bad shape. And Al-Zawari has run the group into the ground to the extent that it continues to exist. And, you know, they're Regional affiliates of Wax and Wayne, the Al Shabaabs, the, the AQAP in Yemen, the North African groups, but they're mostly kind of local jihadi groups with scant ability to attack in the West. I mean, that can change by what worked was this management and containment policy uh, that we had, um, which um, was a drone special operation, special forces advise and assist, you know. But if we don't do that, you know, three or four years down the road, you get vacuums into which these groups come because it's not these groups are not strong they're just they prey on weak coasts and the stronger the uh the government is in a muslim country take indonesia which had a problem with jamaa islamia that's really gone away indonesia is a you know has some capacity as a government but you know the somali uh yemen and, and now the taliban control of afghanistan is going to be a very attractive place so i think that we just we're in another iteration of the story not dissimilar to the summer of 2014 we kind of know how this plays out. It doesn't last forever, but it certainly can go on for several years and you get attacks directed, training by these groups in Europe because of geography and you get inspirational attacks in the United States through the internet. And um, that's why, I mean, I don't see any reason why this didn't, wouldn't, wouldn't again be what we face. Address my question about bin Laden, because I, you know, you you first interviewed him in what, 1997 um, yeah. in uh, in Afghanistan when he was riding high, protected by the Taliban. You followed him. You've read all those communications that were seized after the raid in Pakistan that killed him. Yeah. Um, what was his, uh, you know, how did he become, you know, this soft-spoken guy who didn't seem all that dynamic when you see him talking, you know, become the inspirational leader of this global movement that attacked us. Yeah, you know, thanks for the question, Mike. And I mean, I, that's what the puzzle I'm trying to answer in the book. And if you, you know, if you went to, if anybody on this discussion went to, you know, the, a beer hall in Munich in 1923 and saw Hitler ranting and raving, they would not have found him a particularly, you know, inspirational figure, right? But so, why people inspire um, others is sort of an interesting question. True believers obviously have an ability to do that. Uh, maybe it's a form of sort of a con, but it's a con in which the uh, leader truly believes his own views. And bin Laden certainly, you know, he he believed God was on his side. He was a religious zealot from an early age. Over time, one of the themes in the book is kind of the um, none, none of it was inevitable. You know, him turning from a shy religious teenager into a leader of a group dedicated to kind of mass murder. But um, we know from our own lives that uh, the person that you are when you're 15 is very different from the person you are when you're 54, uh, which is the day, which is the how old bin Laden was when he was killed. And, you know, the book doesn't do a lot of armchair psychologizing. It does point out things that are interesting. His parents divorced when he was two. His father died when he was 10. He barely knew his dad. He met him once only for a substantive one-on-one meeting. 
he that turned him by his own account more to religion. He learned the Quran. But you know, the, the interesting thing, of course, is also he had 54 siblings, none of whom chose this path, even ones that were quite religious. And a number number of his siblings actually were, you know, had houses in the United States and studied in the United States, very pro-American. So the book is an attempt to, to solve a puzzle. And there was a, a very interesting book by Ron Rosenbaum and a series in The New Yorker in which he he kind of tried to unpack all the sort of different explanations for, for why Hitler became Hitler. And of course, Bin Laden is not Hitler. Uh, but, you know, the kind of getting to the why questions is is, is very hard. I mean, we, it, we can describe the process, but ultimately um, there's kind of a little bit of a mystery around the why. Why do you decide to just kill innocent civilians that are strangers uh, in the in the service of an ideology and strategy that really doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, Bin Laden's 9-11 attacks backfired spectacularly, despite his later sort of post facto gloss on them as being a brilliant kind of plan to draw us into the Middle East and bleed us dry. That was certainly not his intention. And that was an argument he started proffering about three years after the 9-11 attacks. So the book is an attempt to, to answer all those things. And, you know, I'm teaching students at Arizona State who weren't born on 9-11. And, um, you know, one of them said, what's the difference between Al-Qaeda and the Taliban? And I thought, well, you know, that's a really interesting question. <laughs> uh, and, you know, we have, you know, we have Bin Laden unplugged with the 470,000 files that were only finally released in full at the end of the, uh, you know, in at the end of 2017. A key document is the Bin Laden Family Journal, which is 228 pages written, handwritten in Arabic, basically that recounting the last several weeks of bin laden's life his you know surprising perhaps for people listening to this that bin laden had two older wives with phds who did a lot of his thinking for him and strategizing and they would have these long meetings in their Fatabai compound to kind of how do we respond to the arab spring understanding that al-qaeda is not involved its ideas aren't involved bin laden's not involved and that was a big conundrum for them that they were trying to solve in the last several weeks of bin laden's life that's recounted in this family journal. It's fascinating, uh, the point about the two older wives who I think you say that he treated as almost as intellectual equals. On the other hand, you know, this uh, very fundamentalist view of women and wouldn't even, men had to, was it that men had to walk out of the room even if a woman appeared on television? Well, um, and, and women had to walk out of the, uh, you know, they began Perder at, at age three with a lot of kids. And, you know, it was a, Bin Laden would use his remote whenever a female news announcer came up on screen, and he was a huge news junkie. He would use his remote to kind of obscure her face. So yeah, there's a kind of disconnect between, in a sense, these kind of like very very misogynistic views of Bin Laden and the Taliban, and the fact that Bin Laden was actually highly reliant on his two oldest wives to kind of write his speeches and think through his what he was going to say. Well, let's return quickly to Afghanistan. That it seems the die has been cast. There's no reversing what's happening there right now. What does the short term bring for us there? And what should we be looking out for in the middle term? Well, in the short term, they're going to declare an Islamic emirate, which won't be that different from the Islamic caliphate that the ISIS, that ISIS kind of declared. It, it may not be as sectarian as, as ISIS, but you know certainly the Taliban killed a lot of Shia Hazaras when they were in power. So we can expect some ethnic cleansing. I think we can expect a lot of uh, people who cooperated with the Americans in one way or another, or with their uh, Europe, you know, Western allies who will end up in prison or getting killed. 
you know, they're going to do the usual kind of playbook for the Taliban, which is banning music, television, except Taliban propaganda, kite flying. Um, you know, the, the major public diversions uh, will be public executions in the, in the Kabul soccer stadium. Do you think it matters at all? Uh, Tom Friedman was arguing in the New York Times on uh, Monday that, uh, you know, the world has changed in the last 20 years, uh, you know, that uh, it's harder to be medieval um, in the age of Facebook and Twitter. Well, tell that to the Uyghurs. Yeah. Yeah. And right. Tom Friedman, who once wrote a book about how the world is flat, you know, now because, you know, we're all connected and McDonald's are everywhere. And this is going to usher in a new era of peace and tranquility throughout the planet. Um, he wasn't very uh, on point prescient. On, uh, yeah. prescient on that on that front. Peter, just to wrap up here uh, in a few weeks, we will be commemorating the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Yeah. As we do so, the Taliban will will be firmly in control in uh, Kabul. Our efforts to put on trial the perpetrators of 9-11 has resulted in one of the great, if not the greatest legal fiascos of all time <laughs> in, uh, in, in American history, certainly in Guantanamo. Uh, there are still unanswered questions about 9-11 attacks themselves, including the Saudi role. There are documents that have not yet been released from the FBI's investigation into the Saudi role. Just by putting it all together, how will the 9-11 anniversary play out in your mind? And, and how do you think, you know, the families of the victims of 9-11 who suffered such horrible losses are going to process this anniversary? I mean, the split screen is going to be, you know, the Taliban having some kind of like tea party at the, at the embassy in Kabul, right, with their buddies from every jihadi group as they celebrate that great victory. And now that's their new victory. I mean, that is the split screen we're gonna see while the names of the dead are memorialized at the Trade Center. Yeah, a grim, uh, a grim outlook for sure. Um, well, anyway, uh, Peter, I wanna thank you as always. The new book, this is what, your third book on Bin Laden itself, <laughs> right? I, I mean, how many lost. more Bin Laden books do you have to write? I, they're really, they're, that's it. I, this is it. You're, you're calling it quits. We we will not we will not ask you to write endlessly about Osama bin Laden. Well, unfortunately, uh, my wife will kill me if she hears this because I'm yeah, supposed okay. to take a hiatus from book writing. But there is a pretty good book to be written about the uh, recent events. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, uh, it it seems like the world is not going to uh, there's not going to be any shortage of the world providing you topics to write about <laughs> in the near future. All right, the the book is The Rise and Fall of Osama bin Laden by Peter Bergen. Peter, thanks again. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Dan. Thanks, Peter. Thanks. thanks.